This past Wednesday night, we had the opportunity to sponsor, along with many other sponsors, a Just Us run. A lot of you were involved. There were uh, 741 runners and walkers participating in the Just Us run, and it was about raising awareness for human trafficking um, and raising funds. And there were 175 volunteers serving and there were a lot of you that were there serving as well. Um, 27000 plus was raised after all expenses were paid. And all that is to help fight human trafficking. So thanks for your participation. It was an exciting time. Okay, Bridge Kids, you may go early, a couple minutes early. Now, does that mean I have a couple of more minutes for the message? <laughs> Do not vote. All right, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 14, and I encourage you to open a Bible or your smartphone, do something smart right now, and find the text, excuse me, Exodus chapter 14. Um, We do show a lot of scripture on the screen, but we will not be showing Exodus 14. This is a great opportunity for you to follow in the text and see how the story develops and see uh, how God's word is explained. So, Exodus 14, it's on page 49 in one of the bridge Bibles, and the other bridge Bible is 69. I don't know which one you got, okay, if you picked one up. And we have some on the table out there. Anytime you want to grab one coming in, that's what they're for, is so when you come in, you can uh, use it, and if you want, you can put it on the table as you leave. If you need one, just take it home, but read it. Several years ago in Great Britain, British researchers conducted a door-to-door survey about uh, what people believed about God. One of the questions was stated like this, do you believe in a God who intervenes in human history, who changes the course of affairs, and who performs miracles? Good question. When the study was published, it took on what was viewed as the typical answer given by one man. And here was his answer. No, I don't believe in that God. I believe in the ordinary God. And so the whole study got named with that phrase. I believe in the ordinary God. Question for you. How about you? Do you believe in a God who intervenes in history and performs miracles? Or do you believe in just an ordinary God? I would think there might be some connection anyway with God because you're here. But maybe you're pursuing, you're interested. So, what do you think? The book of Exodus is about the God who intervenes in human history, changes the lives of people, and performs miracles. Last week in Exodus chapter 13, so we've been in this... uh, Uh, Back, I think, in May, we got started uh, with this whole series in Exodus. Been taking about a chapter a week. Last week was Exodus 13. Uh, And God was in the process of leading, so a little quick background. God was in the process of leading his people out of slavery in Egypt. They were in bondage to Pharaoh. Now, God has raised up Moses in this historical event to lead his people. God demonstrated, looking back now, his awesome power in doing battle against the gods of Egypt uh, by performing 10 plagues. Remember that? We just, chapter after chapter, we walked with the Israelites through one plague, one judgment of God after another. Very slow, very careful, methodical, and they became more and more intense as God brought focus to this issue, really, of justice. After the final plague, when God passed over Egypt and all the firstborn male children in Egypt died, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, remember, were just glad to get the Israelites out of there. So now we come to chapter 14, and Moses and the Israelites are on the move. They, they have made the exodus. They have started that journey out of Egypt. Chapter 14, and you can follow on your program. Verses 1 through 9. God's plan for deliverance unfolds. God's plan for deliverance 
unfolds. But the trouble for the Israelites has not ended. First, we're going to see how God uses human weaknesses in verses 1 through 4. And the encouraging thing is God is still using human weakness today. So you got human weakness, you're in, you're in a good place because that's exactly what God needs to be your help. Look at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near, I'm just going to guess here, pi Hahireth between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Now guess what? We can, we can see a map. We got the map this time? Okay. We don't know really where any of these places are. That's what makes this, this section really difficult. And people who study uh, the Exodus and study uh, the whole parting of the Red Sea, we just really don't know. There's four major views, and they all have some merit, and nearly all of them say, when we come to the conclusion, we just don't know. We don't know where these areas are exactly. Uh, what we have here on the map is Ramesses is where they started out, uh, probably in, uh, in their slavery in a store city held by Pharaoh. That's where they began their march. They, they marched down to, the first stop was Sukkoth, then they went to Etham, and we left them there last week. Now, if you go down to the bottom, you see there's a sea down there. That's the Gulf of Suez, which is connected to the Red Sea. Today, there is a canal from the Gulf of Suez to the Mediterranean Sea called the Suez Canal. The Suez Canal has changed everything in that area. A lot of water has been drained. A lot of water was drained before the Suez Canal. This area does not look anything like it did uh, 3,500 years ago. Sure, there are some similarities, but a lot of these places just uh, for sure can't be identified. We know that somewhere in here, now let's, let's come back to the passage, let's leave the map up there. Um, Verse 2, tell the Israelites to turn back. Now think about this. The Israelites are moving. They're moving away from Egypt. Um, We know that they're going to go down to Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. They're going to receive the Ten Commandments there. We know they don't know exactly where they're going. They're just glad to get out. God is leading them. Uh, Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. God's presence also called the Shekinah glory, his presence. They knew. You wake up in the morning, yeah, God's here. We're okay. Now, God has led him to this point. Now, verse 2, tell the Israelites to turn back. Is that going to be a problem? Back? We're supposed to be moving away from this place. And it's... um, So they're to encamp by the sea. We don't know exactly where the sea is. It's probably really not the Red Sea. It's probably really the Sea of Reeds. I don't want to take a lot of time to explain this. The Hebrew uh, word, um, I knew this, uh, Yom Suf is the Hebrew word. Everybody knew that. It got translated in the Greek uh, Old Testament later to a word for Red Sea. Yom Suf means Sea of Reeds. Hebrew, it's still in the Hebrew, never changed. But sort of, nobody knows where this place is for sure. And, the, and, and some English versions have Red Sea. Okay? Um, I don't take this as a problem. Because God's people have their back against the water. And it's large enough that uh, 600,000 male with their families cannot walk around it. You just can't walk around this place, so it's kind of big. And guess what? You can't walk through it because if you do, you'll drown because that's what's going to happen to the Egyptians. So it's a big place. There's a lot of lakes right along here that are pretty big. You know, if we went to, um, I think of the Sea of Galilee, how big that is. I don't know how big the lakes are around here. I don't think they're probably that big. But um, if you put 600,000 people against the water, you need an escape. And there is an escape coming. That's the plan here. 
so let's, uh, let's track this through. Here's God's plan. He tells them to turn around. That's going to put God's people in a predicament. Pharaoh will think, this is the strategy, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. So it looks like God's people have headed out, they've escaped, and now they don't know what to do. They're confused, they're stuck, they're, they're wandering, they don't know where they're going. And Pharaoh's got time to think about this, and he's going to come up with a plan. Verse 4, but God still has a plan that's a little bit better. Uh, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. So God has a plan. He's going to bring ar- the army out. He's going to bring Pharaoh and the army out. They're, they've been the enemy. They've been the ones who have held God's people in slavery. God's going to bring them out. There's going to be a confrontation. Do you, by the way, do you like confrontation? Some people like confrontation, and some people attack confrontation, and some people are scared to death when you get into a place of confrontation. God has been leading his people. God has a plan. And his plan is to bring glory, to gain glory for himself. This is one of those kind of Bible words. It's a religious word. We, we throw it around. What's that about? Glory, the glory of God is about focusing on him. It's about the, the display of who he is. It's a display of his power. It's a display of what he's like. It's a revelation. Uh, it shows who he is. It demonstrates who he is. There's all kinds of ways God displays glory. He displays glory. When Jesus turned water to wine, God displayed his glory power. We got a little glimpse of it. And God has sort of a big plan here to display a lot of power. Verses 5 through 9, Pharaoh uses human strength. God uses human weakness. There wasn't much to this army that could uh, fight off anybody. They were tired. They were former human slaves. They had no weaponry. And you're going to see they get scared to death. God uses human weakness. Now Pharaoh uses human strength. He's a powerful guy. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. Pharaoh second guesses. He has seller's remorse. He's let his greatest economic asset go free. He's made a huge mistake, and now he must go bring back the people of Egypt. You see, Pharaoh, he just keeps changing his mind. You know, he gives in, he says, I'll do this, and then, nope, I'm going to take control again. Verse 6, so uh, Pharaoh, he had his chariot made ready and took the army with him. He took 600 of his best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Now, please understand that chariots uh, were very high-tech armored vehicles in the 15th century. These were like elite fighting vehicles coming out after uh, the Israelites. Verse 8, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh of Egypt so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all the Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped near the sea, near Pi-Hahiroth, opposite Baal-Ziphon. So, the Egyptian army catches up with the poor Israelites, and they are stuck. They are stuck with the desert, They can't escape to the desert because they'd be easily tracked down. They can't escape because they have water behind them. They are trapped. And the interesting thing, this is just where God wants them to be. Because he says that he has a bigger plan and he's the one who led them there. Please remember that. Sometimes we get in stupid places because we've made poor choices. God's people are here because God led them there. Uh, Verses 10 through 18, God's plan places Israel in a predicament. We can kind of see this one. Verses 10 through 12, Israel's circumstances bring fear and complaint. You know, circumstances are the things that happen around us 
you know, what's happening in the world around us. Those are the outer circumstances. And the most important things are the inner circumstances. What's going on in here? What's going on in your heart? What's going on at the center of your being? So Israel's circumstances bring fear and complaint. Verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. This is scary. God is the one who led us to the spot. It doesn't seem right. Does God really know what's going on here? Would God allow this to happen? The the Israelites could see the powerful forces of the Egyptians. Their circumstances look dire. So what do they do? They look at their circumstances. They said to Moses, verse 11, Was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? You know, remember where they just came from? The place of the pyramids. And all kinds of graves in Egypt that were really big, really important. If you're going to die, wouldn't you want to die where they know about death? We don't want to die out here in the desert and have animals eat our bones. Was it because there was no graves? Moses, what were you thinking? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? They blame their leader for getting them out of Egypt, for getting them in this spot, it's because of poor leadership. There were not enough graves in Egypt for them. They blame their leader. Moses' plan is obviously not working. Verse 12, didn't we say to you in Egypt, Moses, we told you so. Remember when we were back in Egypt? We told you this wouldn't work. And they're going to try to prove to Moses that they were right. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone and let us serve the other, the Egyptians? You know, wouldn't that be great? We could have just stayed human slaves. We'd have been safe. We could have had a place over our head at night. That was better than being out here because this is so scary. You know, are they going to die? That's a good question. You know, sometimes faith is risky when you trust your entire life to God. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So, so the Israelites' memory is very short. That's kind of a human issue sometimes. Memory can be short. The Israelites are struggling with amnesia. Where, where have they been? They just came out of Egypt with God's powerful hand. God just week after week and month after month displayed his power. They've already forgotten. They're already worried that they're in a predicament that cannot be solved. God does not seem trustworthy. If God knew better, he would have never let this happen. And... We're not sure God made a very good choice with leadership either. Verses 13 through 14, Moses directs Israel to focus on the Lord and not on their circumstances. So now Moses steps in as leader. It's kind of nice to see growth of a leader. This is not the same Moses that stepped forward a few years back. Moses is growing in his confidence. Uh, Moses' skill in leadership are growing. Moses has seen God at work firsthand, and Moses is beginning to trust God and what he can do. Moses, is, Moses knows that God is working out the details. Now, we sit there and we think Moses already knows the whole story, that God has told him the whole plan. Not necessarily. Moses just knows he's supposed to obey. Moses is supposed to know, he's supposed to, he's supposed to tell the people when to move, when to follow, when to stop. And Moses knows that God has a plan here, and Moses doesn't know exactly how this is going to work out. But Moses knows he's going to pay attention to what God has said. And so Moses attempts to bring uh, focus in verses 13 and 14. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. What? Do not 
be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Do not be afraid, he says. That's a really strong theme in Scripture. When God shows up and speaks to his people, do not be afraid, because fear paralyzes. And the message is, is to stand firm. Hold the line. You don't have to cower in this situation. Stand your ground with God. Watch the Lord. You will see. Uh, you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring. Stand and watch. Look for the answer. Look for what God is doing to bring resolution to this situation. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. He's going to do the battle. You only need to be still. Or, in other words, shut up and stop complaining. Sometimes God's people focuses on complaining. Don't we, sometimes? Certainly that's what's happening here. Verses 15 through 18, God calls for his people to move forward. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Apparently, we don't have the whole story here. Apparently, Moses took the time to fill God in on what was happening. God's people were complaining. They're fearful. Moses has stood up and spoke to them. And now he's kind of reported back to God. God says, why are you crying out to me? Let's go with the next step. Tell the the Israelites to move on. Move forward. Go. Verse 16, raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on the dry ground. This is the same staff that Moses took and threw on the ground. His first experience, remember when God met with Moses at the burning bush, bush and he says, Moses, what's that in your hand? And well, it's a staff. And he says, throw it on the ground, and it turned into a snake, and Moses jumped back. This is the same staff. And he's, God tells Moses, raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through on dry ground. This is the plan. The Israelites... Are going to escape. God is going to separate the water. He's going to create two walls of water. This is unbelievable, isn't it? He's going, to, he's going to open up the sea, and he's going to create a dry road for God's people to walk through. This might be a miracle. What do you think? Can your God do that? Is this a problem? You know, a lot of people try to explain things in the Bible with natural uh, expectations. Yes, God is a God of creation. He used the created order to accomplish his will here. Yes, he can use a wind to dry up the sea if he chooses to. He created the sea. He can separate it if he wants to. He is focusing on, he wants to display his power for his people. What he wants is people to learn to trust him. And he's going to a great deal of effort to let his people know exactly who he is. Verse 17, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. God will do the miracle and the Egyptians will follow. The sea is going to open up and guess what? The Egyptians are going to think, guess what? Our gods are now finally overcoming the God of Israel and we're going to gain ground. We're going to go right in after them. And this is not going to work for the Israelis at all. And God says, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. God is the one who's going to gain the glory. His power will be on display. Think about this. His power is going to be on display for the safety of his people and the justice of the Egyptians. They're going to receive justice. God's people will receive mercy. Verse 18, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through the Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So this is God's plan. An ungodly world ruler and his army will bring glory to the true and living God. 
he will, God will receive the recognition, the attention, the focus, the spotlight. He will be honored through this event. Verses 19 through 31, our last section, number three, God's plan brings honor to himself. Verses 19 and 20, we see God protects his people. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. This is kind of a huge thing that just happens right here. We got these 600,000 Israelis with their families, you know, probably conservatively 2 million plus, are camped here. This is not an easy group to move. You know, how do you get the whole group to move in one direction at the same time? It's going to move very slowly. And God has been leading them with a, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And the And the cloud has been ahead of them. And now the cloud is going to take up the rear guard and come between Israel and Egypt, and God will be a barrier to Israel's enemy. God will protect them. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to to the one side and light to the other side so that neither went near the other all night long. So this cloud was between God's people and the Egyptians all night. Now, if you were on the Israeli side, guess what? It was the pillar of fire you could see. And they walked through dry ground in the light, the light of God. On the other side was the pillar of darkness. And uh, I would suggest this was more than just natural darkness that night. Do you remember the plague of darkness? There was a supernatural darkness People couldn't see the hand in front of their face. And that's where Egypt, the Egyptians, are stuck in the darkness. And if you remember at the plague, the darkness brought was a big tip that judgment was coming. And I think there's a message for Egypt. They are about to face a major judgment as they wait there in the darkness. God's power displayed, verse 21 and 22. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove back, drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned into a dry land. The waters were divided. The Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with all the water on their right and on their left. So the, you got these two walls of water. I don't know how wide this was. It was wide enough for a large group of people to walk through on dry ground. God intervenes in human history. God can perform miracles. And God can change the course of human lives. Verses 23 through 25, God fights for his people. The Egyptians pursued them and all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. So at some point, God is going to let down the rear guard. He's going to open up the way to the sea And he's going to let the Egyptians trail right in. And they're going to come storming in. And um, they're just waiting to catch up with the, the Israelites. And God has a plan for this. Verse 24, during the last watch of the night. So this is about 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning, roughly. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire. This is kind of those unique things. We we get a glimpse of what God is doing here. He is watching from the pillar of fire. He's watching the Egyptians. He looked down from the pillar of fire and the cloud and the Egyptian army, and he threw it into confusion. He did something as the army came in that was very confusing. I'm guessing they had significant technical difficulties with their armored vehicles. And things aren't happening uh, just like normal. Um, He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. The, The Egyptians now get the picture. Now they realize what has happened. They thought they were coming into an easy victory. And 
the God of the Israelites is still at his job and he's still protecting the Israelites. And now he's bringing a judgment on the Egyptians. Verses 26 to 28, God takes out the Egyptian army. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea. Isn't it interesting how God has picked Moses to be the leader of this people? And he, God doesn't need Moses to do this, but he, he wants the people to know there's a correlation between Moses' leadership, his relationship with God, and what God is intending to do. And he's wanting his people to learn to trust Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Um, Verse 27, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place and the Egyptians were fleeing uh, toward the sea and the Lord swept them into the sea and the water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. So this first is a miracle of God's deliverance of his people. He protects his people. He delivers them. He saves them from the Egyptian army. It's second, a miracle of divine judgment on evil. That is what is happening here. Verses 29 through 31, God's people saved. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. God's people were protected. They were kept safe. Verse 30, the day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and the Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. This will be an important day in the history of Israel. God delivers his people from their enemy. God is going to want his people to tell this story to the next generation and the generation after that. This is what God is like. This is who God is. This is how God protects his people. This is God's power displayed. By the way, the Bible never tells us to make an attempt to use God's power for our purposes or to expect God's power for our purposes. He has a plan. And he uses his power for his purposes. And when we are in submission to his leadership and his purposes, yes, he works through us and he can do a miracle anytime he wants to. Verse 30, the day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. Seeing dead bodies on the shoreline was a real reminder that God is serious. God is just. He keeps his promises. It's a great reminder of a future that there is going to be God saves his people. He's going to do that. In this case, he did it physically. He saved his people physically from the consequences of the situation where they were going to be Overcome by evil. God brought judgment on evil. And he took the lives of the Egyptians on that day. There's a day coming when there's going to be... God's people will be saved spiritually. And evil will be judged. And people who choose evil will be judged by the power of God. Verse 31, and when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and Moses, his servant. So God was successful. Israel saw the glory of God displayed. God's people grew in their respect for God and their trust for his word. Uh, they haven't learned it all yet because they, they're going to make a few mistakes as they move forward. And this is not going to be the last time that they complain and that they are afraid. But they're growing in their knowledge of the true and living God. So let's talk about some lessons here. I have five lessons. You don't have five numbers on your program, but you have a back of your outline. 
Here are some lessons. Number one, God enjoys using our weaknesses to accomplish his purposes in his ways. God, God enjoys using our weaknesses to accomplish his purposes in his way. God used a tired bunch of um, Hebrew slaves without any battle skills and weapons and without any courage. And uh, God displayed his power on their behalf in their situation and it brought attention because they were so weak and in such a vulnerable place and God displayed his power. The Apostle Paul understood this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. And Paul uh, suffered in different ways at different times. And he apparently had some physical issue that he weighed him down and even asked God to remove the physical issue three different times. And God says, nope. He says, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. The apostle Paul got it. That his human weakness does not have to be a drawback to God in any way. In fact, God will use human weakness to honor himself. And Paul learned to be humble and honest about his weaknesses and allow God to work through him. We would be happy if God just took our problems and our weaknesses and our pain away. I'm sorry to say God does not always choose that. And often he just choose, he chooses to let us um, navigate in a sinful world with a limited, weak body. And yet he is eternal and he brings us into eternal relationship with him to bring honor to himself. Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6 says, So he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by, my, not by might nor power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. You can just count on this being kind of the, kind of the norm on how God wants to do things. He wants to do things by his spirit. This is a, kind of a big temptation for us sometimes because we like to do things in our own strength. We think we're smart enough or have enough energy or enough resources to do something and we sometimes forget to depend on Christ. We try to do something sometimes for Christ without the Spirit of Christ, without depending on the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. God is honored when we operate with spiritual strength that comes only from Him. Secondly, fear is a common emotion we have when our circumstances are out of control. It's a common human response. Trusting God in His Word can drive out fear. As soon as the Israelites realized the Egyptians were uh, headed toward them and they had their back against the sea, these were tough circumstances. They began to obsess about their situation. And they didn't put their circumstances into focus with their relationship with God and how he had worked in their lives already. Um, 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 through 18 reminds us of this. And Apostle John writes, And we know and rely on the love God has for us. And this is an important concept. God loves you. And, Paul, and John says, We know and re rely on this. I know firsthand that not all of you believe God loves you. And I could, I've spent a lifetime learning about how God loves me. In my early days, I just took it as a theological truth. I somehow didn't seem worthy enough that God would love me. Over time, and my wife was a great help in this, I began to see and experience God's love for me. And it just makes a world of difference when you know God loves you. I can guarantee you that he does, absolutely. And so we know that and rely on the love God has for you. And then this God is love. That's really important. And this is true. God is love. Now, let me remind you that our culture can take this way out of context as if this is the only truth that God ever revealed about himself. And, and therefore, anything that is somehow opinionated about moral standards isn't loving. And what we, what we know in the scriptures is, yes, God is love. He's, he's, he's full of love. He's loving. He acts in loving ways. 
He's a God of mercy, but he's also a God of justice and righteousness, and he is going to judge sin, and there's no mistake about that. He's made a provision for our sin when he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross. God is love, for God so loved the world. He loved every person enough to send his son. So God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. It's a good place to be. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence in the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. We are like Jesus when we live in love and love like God, okay? Next uh, slide. There is no fear in love. That's what I wanted to get to. There is no fear in love. You don't have to be afraid of God. You need to be in awe of God. That's the true biblical concept for that word, fear the Lord. And you don't necessarily need to fear your circumstances. Your circumstances may be extremely difficult. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is, made, is not made perfect in love. God's perfect love for you, when you understand that and experience that and live in it, it can drive out the fear that you have on a daily basis. When your circumstances can get out of your control. I think kind of like the normal response for fear is, from Scripture, is, is to use that to turn to prayer. I'm not saying you shouldn't ever experience it because we're human. We do experience when we find ourselves in a situation. But those situations can turn us to prayer. Don't be anxious about anything, but by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Take this issue, this predicament, these circumstances, and place them in God's hand. Because it's about your inner circumstances. Not necessarily your outer circumstances. Number three, work out your complaints with God before you complain about others to them. Work out your complaints with God. We know in the Bible that God has allowed his people to complain to him from time to time. And I just want to encourage you to be honest with God. When you're in a tough spot and you don't understand and you want to know why, you just tell God about it. And if you have a legitimate complaint and you can communicate that with uh, your family member or a friend or a coworker, and you can just say, I want you to know about this, and you can lodge a complaint that way or make, make a point known and you can resolve something, that's great. But, you know, God isn't real excited about complainers. Critical people who focus on their circumstances and blame other people. Sort of like just what happened to the Israelites when they were complaining about Moses. It's just like they forgot already so quick. And they were so worried about their circumstances, they didn't think anything could overcome their circumstances. And Philippians 2.14 reminds us, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Or New American is, do everything without grumbling or complaining. Doesn't mean you're... uh, all your problems get taken away. There's a part of it where you and I just need to learn to d- deal with difficult circumstances and speak about them in ways that honor God. And I'm not saying be, to bury your emotions or bury your thoughts. You can be honest, but you don't have to complain. You don't have to be negative. You don't have to um, blame others. Or bl- Number four. Don't stay stuck in your Christian life. Move forward. And so just for a short time, Israel was stuck on the seashore with their back against the water. And all they could think of was their circumstances. And God's instruction was, okay, move. Get off of the dime. Momentum forward. And God moved his People. One of my uh, favorite passages is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, and you'll hear me refer to it now and then. It's really helpful for me all my life as a believer. Therefore, my dear friends, Paul writes, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. And here it is. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. 
It's not work for your salvation. We know that. We don't, we don't work for salvation. But Paul is saying work out. You already have salvation. You have believed in Jesus. You've already experienced the forgiveness of sins. You've received that gift of salvation. You have the Holy Spirit in you. There are at least 33 different truths that are true about you eternally because of this salvation. And, and Paul says, work it out. Work it out. It's stuck inside of you. It needs to come to the surface so other people can see it, who you're like, what you're becoming more and more like Jesus. And it's going to happen through things that you do. So work it out. And what I like it is, it's like, okay, don't just sit there. Get up and start walking by faith. Sometimes it means I'm going to move forward. I'm going to pray because that's living by faith. And and I'm going to seek to honor God. So that means I'm going to choose the best I can not to disobey him. There are certain things I know that are off limits. So I want to steer away from them. I'm going to steer into those things that I know God wants me to do. That's working it out. That's doing something. I, I have permission and freedom to do all these things. Don't do nothing. Do something. Work out your salvation. Do something. Because as you engage with God, He is going to engage with you. This is what I love. As I step forward, I don't have all the answers. I don't have everything figured out. But if I step forward, God begins to work through me. For it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill His good purpose. That's pretty exciting when God is working in you. And you see God do things that you can't do. And you see things that honor Him. And He gives a lot of energy to do those things when it's Him and not just us trying harder. Okay, last one. God is still saving people today. God is still saving people today. And you knew that. I just wanted to remind you. God saved the Israelites' physical deliverance. And there's times that God is going to deliver you from your circumstances. There's no guarantee. There's no promise there that he's always going to deliver you from every difficult thing. Sometimes, and he's going to, let, he's going to do this with his people in the Old Testament, he's going to let them walk through difficult circumstances to help them grow, help them live by faith, help them to understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what's coming. They're going to learn that. God will sometimes deliver you from your circumstances. What I can guarantee you is God will deliver you from your eternal circumstances and deliver you to eternal life, to what we call eternal salvation, because of what he's done for you. If, you know, we could go back and we could look at the story at the Red Sea, the Red Sea experience, or the Sea of Reeds. It's just a big body of water. We could go back and we can look at this story, and it's what God did. God saved his people. God parted the sea. God changed the direction. God led them. God is the one who brought the victory. It was totally the work of God. It wasn't about human effort. They had to respond in faith. When God said, move, it was time to move. That wasn't like human effort that saved them. And the same is true when it comes to being saved eternally. It's something God has already done for us. It's, he has done the work already. That's when we talk about Jesus dying on the cross. Now, the reason this is important, you know, I know a lot of people in this room understand this. There are some people in this room that probably don't understand this yet. And I just want uh, to let people know that this is the starting point. This is where every Christian has to start. This is how you begin a relationship with God. It's about placing your faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. Here's, here's the deal. He died on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sin. We talked about that if you've been here in the past when we talked about the Passover lamb. God passed over sin, judged sin. And for those who believe in him, he passed over and we are forgiven. God still gives the opportunity for every person today, today, that if you will believe in Jesus, he will forgive your sins, he will give you eternal life, and heaven will be your home, and you can trust him in the future. It's still the very same offer we have today. Acts 16.30. This is... uh, The Apostle Paul and Silas with the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas have been in jail and God has delivered them from the jail. He's opened the door. 
The jailer brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and you and your household. So that was the message. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Then they spoke the word of the Lord. And that's that whole thing about understanding, you know, God uh, is the true and living God and he has moral standards. And we violate his moral standards. It's called sin. And the Bible says all of us have violated God's standards. And God has made a provision for us in sending his son Jesus. And Jesus died on the cross and paid for all the sin penalty. When you think about that, the sin penalty is paid right now forever for all time. It only benefits people who believe in Jesus. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in the house. Next slide. At the hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he in his household. And on that day, they began a relationship with Jesus Christ. They began a relationship with God that they didn't have before that night. I'd like to pray right now and thank God for uh, this message in Exodus. But if you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, I just want to give you an opportunity uh, by prayer because prayer is one way to express your, your faith. Let's bow in prayer. God, I want to thank you uh, for the message in the book of Exodus, the reminder that... Um, you lead us and you guide us and you make provision for us and you're looking for us to trust you. And God, I would just ask this morning, how is it that you want us to trust you in the days ahead? What are the things, what are our circumstances that require us to trust you even when it's hard and that you want us to move forward? Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your help. Thank you for your strength. Thank you that you're going to guide us. Thank you that you're going to answer. And then, God, right now, I just want to pray for anyone in the room who maybe has never placed their faith in Jesus Christ and just share that they can pray right now, just silently from their heart, something like this. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. Can you, can you pray that and make that yours? I admit that I'm a sinner. Thank you that Jesus died for me. I trust him right now to pay the penalty for my sins. And I invite Jesus to come into my life and to help me to be the person that he wants me to be. That's just one way to express your faith to God. Make that yours. And if you have any questions, you'd like to talk to anybody about it, just let us know. Let me know. I'd love to talk with you. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.